It's episode 53 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program is Martin Erickson. He's the co-founder of the Mind the Product Conference and the co-author of the book, Product Leadership, How Top Product Managers Launch Great Products and Build Successful Teams. We're going to discuss the role of head of product. Who are these people? How did they get there? And what do they do? Martin, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Delighted to be here. You have had a busy few weeks. It's been a little bit busy, yeah. Last uh, Friday, we had uh, 1,720 of my closest friends in the, in the Barbican from 50 countries around the world talking about product. It was, it was impressive, yeah. I was there, um, I'm, and I appreciate the invitation. I, um, I've been for the last few years. I am always so impressed by the scale. I just, I, I don't know why, but obviously it's a very successful conference and it's amazing content. A lot of people should be there, but I'm like, I, I just feel like every company I'm ever in, like product is always small, you know, like there's the engineering team is 300 people and then there's 10 product people. Uh, and then all of a sudden, like there's almost 2000 product people here. And, uh, and I feel like that's why we need the extra therapy because, uh, you know, all the engineers gang up on us, the designers make fun of us. We, we kind of, we need to find our people. Well, you maybe maybe you found all of them. Maybe there's 1,700 uh, of them on this half of the world, and then you do it in San Francisco too, don't you? We do. Yep, Uh, that was back in July, and then uh, we've actually also just announced we're starting one in Singapore in March. Oh, I didn't. I missed that bit. Sorry, I got there a little late. Was that was that a big announcement? Singapore. That's that's the big one. We're uh, trying our third our third nation, our third country, our third region. Will be really exciting. That's cool. That's really cool. What's the what's the product scene like over there? Do you have a sense? It's still pretty nascent, I think. Uh, much like Europe is a couple of years behind the U.S., uh, most of Asia does seem to be a couple of years behind us. But there's definitely a lot of interest. There's a lot of great companies and startups coming out of Southeast Asia and the Far East and Australasia, as you probably know. Um, so they're they're there. They're probably a bit more spread out, which is one reason we're excited to do it in a bit of a hub city like Singapore, so we can bring them all together. Let me, so let me, uh, I want to talk about this a little. I'm going to talk about head of product stuff because that's very much weighing on my mind right now. But, uh, but I do want a little bit of the kind of the history of what you have done here with Mind the Product because you had this, you had this organization called Product Tank, which were like meetups yep. around the world, right? And yep. that gives you a sense of like where there's activity and what's going on. And I can't imagine you're going to, uh, even a, a small minority of them now because there are, you've got a hundred of them, don't you? 158 at the last count, I think, around the world. Yeah, I know. I was looking at the webpage, and there's like Nairobi yeah. and yeah. Uh, Ho Chi Minh City, and just like, I mean, they're everywhere. Yeah, it's definitely been an amazing journey. Um, and I wasn't even kidding about therapy. We started this when I was a <laughs> VP product at a startup. Uh, I was the only person actually doing product work, had nobody to talk to and kind of share with, and most importantly, learn from. Yeah, and so I decided to start this uh, meetup just to be able to meet other product people. And we started with about twenty-five people in the back room of a slightly dingy bar in the back of Leicester Square in London. And uh, honestly, we would have been totally happy if that's where it stayed. If we just had that every couple of months and a little network to learn from and talk to, and yeah, it kind of took on a life of its own. Sorry, how long ago was that? That was in two thousand and ten. Oh yeah, so, so you've been, been eight it. years. So about eight yeah. years ago, yeah, interesting, interesting. Uh, and then to 150 cities around the world—that's crazy. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. Um, so, are these kind of self-forming, or is it more like you know, uh, like TEDx, where it's sort of sanctioned and they get resources, or like? 
It's uh, somewhere in between. That's definitely uh, sanctioned. We do kind of police them and check that they're doing it for the right reasons, have the right motivations. We don't allow vendors or recruiters or other nefarious types like that uh, run their own <laughs> meetups. Um, they can obviously sponsor and be part of it, but the organizers have to be practitioners so that it really comes from that authentic place of uh, wanting to move our craft forward and by learning and, and sharing with each other. So we kind of keep an eye on it that way, and then we try to support it as much as we can. Obviously, it's uh, very geographically spread out. All of them are at various stages of maturity in their markets as well. So we have everything from you know a dozen people in Helsinki every couple of months to I think it's 400 people every month in London to 100, 200 people every month in, in New York and San Francisco uh, and everything in between. So depending on the size and scale, we... We support them differently, um, but the idea is that someone should be able to start it without putting out any money whatsoever for right. meetup fees or anything else. We help them find sponsors, but obviously it is up to those local product people to, to help find the, the local sponsors, local venues, and most importantly, local speakers that can actually share their stories. That's cool. That's really cool. I will put a link to that in the show notes so people can like check out uh, the closest one to them. Or they can go travel. They can go to Ho Chi Minh City. Absolutely. And, I want to go to all 158, but uh, it's going to take a while. You'll get your, you'll get your freaking flyer miles. I need, sure. I need a better sponsor for that one. <laughs> there you go. Um, the, uh, the, the conference a couple weeks ago, uh, Mind the Product, was uh, – I was very um, – pleased to feel this theme running through it of like humanity and empathy and emotional intelligence and uh, psychological safety and kind of all these things in the zeitgeist right now kind of coming through in almost every one of the talks. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty interesting that we weren't like, you know, looking at Trello boards and talking about agile. I feel like the, I mean, there's, there was definitely a intention behind the curation around bringing some of that discussion to the fore. Um, and I wanted to have much more of a discussion around the softer side of things, the, the, the human-centered piece and the ethics, really, of what we do mm. on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think it came out as an even stronger theme than maybe I had planned, but that's because I think everybody on reflection kind of is moving towards that. I think 10 years ago, the conversation was absolutely around methodologies and Trello boards and how do we actually ship things. Now we haven't quite figured out how to ship things, but we have a better <laughs> handle on it at least. And now it's more about how do we, how do we make sure we're shipping the right things? How do we make sure that we bring everyone along on that journey? How do we make sure that we aren't shipping things that are detrimental to our, our users and our customers and our markets as well? I think uh, last year there was a speaker. Uh, I think she at the time was a designer at Moo, the 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 business card company yeah. uh, named Jane Austen. Yeah, uh, and she put up a slide that said, "I know." Like we know how to make the thing right, but how do we make the right thing? And that has always stuck with me as just like, oh my God, what a great thing to like say to a CTO in a company. Like you yeah. know how to make the thing right, but are you even making the right thing? How do you know? And that yeah. to me like embodies this notion of like what is product and user experience and how does that all come together? And, and like, like we can build anything and we can, and we can even figure out how to ship anything on time. But you know, is there any sense that it's the thing that needs to be made? And I think, you know, we can build anything, but even Google that has, I don't know how many tens of thousands of engineers can't build everything. So even for them, it's important to figure out what is the right thing to build, right? Yeah, at the right time. Um, right, for sure. Um, one other thing, I didn't mention this in the intro, but you also have a title of executive in residence at EQT Ventures. What's that? 
I basically want to be like you when I grow up. Just, that's <laughs> don't, what's don't happening. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm basically a mini you um, in many ways, except physically, I suppose. Um, no, I, it's a role I'm doing at, at a firm called EQD Ventures, which is a relatively new entrant in the VC field. Yeah. Uh, and I do it part-time, which is why it's an executive residence uh, role. But basically, it's, you can think about me as a, a, a VP of product and residence. So I'm, I'm here to help all of our portfolio companies figure out what this thing called product is, uh, mm-hmm. how to build the function, how to do it properly, and as importantly for many of them as their founders, how to let go of their baby a little bit and, and trust somebody else with that, uh, that journey. Perfect segue, <laughs> because this is what I want to talk about, this idea of head of product and why it's weighing on my mind, because um, – because in my job, I work with uh, founders at the early, early stages of their companies. And we always, and I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, but there's this sort of pattern that happens as they get their company to 20 to 30 to 40 people, right? Um, and these are the, like the difficult first couple years. Yeah. Um, you get to that point and literally everything that has worked for you that, uh, up until then breaks. All the communication stops the stops working. Nobody knows what's going on. Now we have squads or pods or, or of people that um, aren't talking to each other anymore. The way we ship the product doesn't work anymore, and all this breaks. And uh, it's also the point where the founders realize, oh, I see. My job is not to make this product. My job is to make this company. And without the company, yeah. there is no product. And I have to spend 150% of my time now on like making sure we have money in the bank and uh, making sure we have amazing people around the table. Like yeah. it's, you know, it's essentially just money and recruiting. And, and that's, and then I try to eke out a little bit of time for the vision for where we should keep going and the values. But honestly, I need to find leverage in leadership. And yeah. so I need a head of product. Oh my God. Like it's the last thing that they want to give up. Yeah. So, um, so I've been thinking about this and, and, and one of the things, uh, in your book that you talk a lot about is, is this idea of leadership as being a hundred percent about the team. Yeah. And, um, and so finding somebody to take the team and to care for the team and to make the team successful, uh, I think is, is kind of what it's all about. Absolutely. I think, you know, again, 10 years ago, we could have had a conversation around having, a brilliant designer and a brilliant engineer and, you know, maybe a, a brilliant hustler and they could have built most of the product, the, the company and everything else. I think today the world is getting more and more complicated. Finding, finding leverage, finding that edge in new product development is getting more and more difficult. You need not just great engineering and design, but you also need great data science. You need great analytics. You need great insights from user research. You need uh, so much more in order to be successful. And the more that grows, the more that communication piece becomes difficult. And really, that's where that leadership piece becomes so critical. And I think product for me is much more about being the person who brings that conversation together uh, at the team level, uh, around a team, around a table, uh, but not so much the person you know, telling anyone what to do or anything, which, which it might have been, again, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, there's a, there's a talk I gave. I don't think I used this in a talk when I was at your conference a few years ago, but this goes back a few years. Um, but I've always been a big fan of, uh, professional cycling. And for people who don't follow professional cycling, don't realize that it is a hundred percent a team sport. It feels like, no, you're just, there's a guy on a bike and he rides really fast and he beats the other guys, right? But that there's, um, you know, the physics of how you keep yourself out of the wind so you don't have to pedal as hard and all of that is all, and having different specialists 
to help you get up the mountain and, and, or do well on the flats or whatever. It's very much, there's a team of, of a dozen people, uh, each with their own job and all of them combining to get one person across the line as, as, you know, faster than anybody else. And it's interesting because whenever you watch like the Tour de France and somebody like comes across the finish line with their hands in the air and they're, everybody is like focused on you won, you won, you won. Uh, you know, how did you do, how did you do that today? How did you get up the mountain so fast? And they always say the team was really strong today. Like I didn't, I had to do hardly any work. The team was really strong today. Um, and that to me was always this metaphor of like, it feels like, you know, like you have the Johnny Ives of the world, these like, you know, heads of design had a product or whatever that are, have all this notoriety and like they must be brilliant. And they just like wake up in the morning and sketch out the next iPhone and done. Um, but in fact, it's, it is literally turning it around and saying like, uh, I put all my effort into making, to amplifying the abilities of the people that are, that, that are on this team. Um, uh, and I thought we could talk a yeah, little bit about that, like, how that, do you do that. that? Right. Yeah. And I think that the myth of the kind of lone genius designers is, is sadly perpetuated throughout our, our industry, right? With, you know, whether it's a product manager, founder, designer, whatever kind of lone genius you want to put in a role. Um, and it is something we need to dispel. I think there's, there's a lot of evidence of it. I think, uh, I don't know if you've seen the Netflix documentary abstract, mm. the art of design. I loved it for the insight it gave into all those various processes from architecture to, to designing shoes. But uh, what it kind of only hinted at and left behind again was the depth of the right. team behind all of these people and the, and the success that they've had. And it's, it's something we really wanted to lift up when we started talking about the book as well, that how important that, that team yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. What do you, what do you think the, the qualities are of, of product leadership that are, that are most valuable to success? Really, I think the fundamental one for me, and as we say in the book, is kind of being able to play well with others, right? It, it isn't, it's recognizing that you don't know everything and it's recognizing that you need a full team uh, with all the various skills and experiences and diverse inputs that that comes with in order to find the, the right product and build the best possible thing. And that's just really the most fundamental one for me because it, it is ultimately a people role mm. and it's about bringing bringing that perspective to the table and, and being open to other inputs um, and always kind of thinking team first as opposed to thinking about themselves first. So that can manifest itself in a few ways. Uh, there is certainly the recruiting aspect of it, right? Um, and as you and I are working with startups, it's all about growth and, yeah. and building a team. And generally, often there's one person starting and then you have a couple and now we've got five and, and then it turns into management, then it turns into leadership. And, and now I need to get, you know, I have to build out a research function and I have to build out a, a design function. And maybe I'm interacting with marketing as well and getting like the visual, like brand part of it together, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so I think that there's a, there's a lot there, uh, around just understanding like the talent in the industry and what we're looking for and how we're doing that and what's the right fit for this culture and all of that. And I think at the startup level, one of the things I'm always talking about these days is how important it is to hire for the right level. Yeah. I think it's very tempting to go straight out and hire that kind of XVP of product or design from, you know, insert big company name X here. Um, but actually that can be really dangerous for a small startup because they're not used to working at that smaller scale. They're not used to working with very few resources actually better to hire someone I find who is uh, used to being hands-on, used to being a practitioner, wants to take that next step up and can kind of earn the job uh, on the job. And if nothing else, if worst case, if they don't step up and they don't 
proved to be a great leader, you can always hire in above that person. But if you've already hired a super senior VP, it can be really hard to, to get rid of them or figure out how to replace them with someone else over time. So that's another classic challenge I mm. see with our startups. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The other half of that, beyond just like sort of filling in the team and building the team, is to uh, ensure the team is continuously getting better at what they do. Right. I kind of, I kind of um, summarize this up as craft, being responsible for the craft. So that's everything from like career, like career development and, and like the, jo- the job ladder and, and like, is there opportunity for me at this organization? But it's also like, how do we do uh, critique of each other's work? Um, what are the, what are the systems in place for uh, collaboration and, and, and postmortems and just like all of that kind of stuff? How, how do we make people better? And, yeah. and give them opportunity. And I think that's one of the hardest things to do in that role, right? Because at the heart of it, any any head of product or head of design in that kind of role is a generalist. Um, they're not going to know the specifics of what makes for the best possible user researcher or data scientist or engineer or whoever's in their team. Uh, and so kind of being open to that again and almost letting the team help figure out how to advance that person's skill set and craft and and being open to the whole team figuring out, hey, wait a minute, there's a better way to do this. Uh, and not being kind of slavishly, you know, slavishly following the latest methodologies or, or fads in terms of process management either. Mm, that's always tempting, isn't it? Yeah. It's always easy. Somebody, you know, writes a book. Uh, hopefully we weren't too, uh, hopefully we weren't too dogmatic about our approach. But uh, somebody writes a book and you get excited and like, oh my God, it worked that well at that company. Let's do it at our company. But I think uh, we both know that uh, there are there's no one methodology that has worked the same in two different companies. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Okay, I got some more questions for you, but we're gonna we're gonna take a little break here and uh, talk about our friends from Linode again. Uh, love these guys. Um, Linode does the. If, if you haven't heard in a previous podcast, I've been talking about them for a little while. Uh, they do the virtual private servers in the cloud. You get to log in, do anything you want. Um, Prices uh, starting as low as $5 a month, up and running with your own virtual server in the Linode cloud in under a minute. Uh, so whether you're just getting started with a first server or developing like a hugely complex, uh, like, you know, Docker cluster or whatever you're doing, Linode is the right choice uh, because they offer the fastest hardware network uh, with fantastic customer support behind all of it. Um, and it's uh, never been easier to launch a Linode cloud server. Uh, they've got an interface uh, that literally lets you just click a couple buttons. Uh, and all of a sudden you can log in you're done. They've got a 99.9% uptime for server availability. Uh, once your server is set up, they intend to keep it that way. And Linode offer additional storage too. They have this new block storage system that's out of beta uh, and is a- available in their Fremont and Newark data centers. But they have data centers all over the world as well. Um, you can use these servers for just about anything, hosting databases or mail servers or VPNs or, like I said, with Docker clusters or Git servers, anything. It's um, really uh, up to your own imagination what you can do with them right now. Um, fantastic pricing. One gigabyte of RAM server for only $5 a month. Uh, you uh, can also go up to incredibly powerful servers for much more than that um starting with like 16 gigs of ram but going up even higher than that doing kind of anything you want with with these servers as a listener of the show if you sign up at linode.com slash presentable you'll be supporting us but also you'll get 20 dollars uh of credit 
in your account. So that means for one of those one gigabyte RAM plans, uh, you get four free months of service with a seven day money back guarantee if you don't want to, uh, if it's not for you. So there's really nothing to lose. All right. Linode.com slash presentable to learn more, sign up and take advantage of the $20 credit. Thanks so much to Linode for supporting this show and all of Relo Relay FM. All right. So, um, once we get our server set up, what are we doing? Oh, we're prioritizing. That's the next thing I wanted to talk about. <laughs> Figuring out what to build. What to build, what order to build it in. Look, prior, prioritization. I'm going to keep talking about startups. Maybe we can talk about enterprise a little bit later because I'm sure many of the people listening here have um, have jobs at much bigger companies. But prioritization, to me, is what is how startups live live and die. Like literally, you're uh, like I said, the founder is watching the clock and watching the bank account, and those two things are linked in an incredibly realistic way, right? Like I remember when we were building Typekit, my co-founder Brian and I, we knew the date that we would run out of money. Like we like we knew how much we were spending today, knew much how much how much we had in the bank. It's pretty simple math. We're gonna run out of money, so we have to build the th- things in the right at the right in the right order at the right time to make sure that we can extend that runway that get revenue coming and and to figure out what we need to figure out as soon as possible. So, um, man, prioritization is so hard. Yeah. I think there's, I mean, there's so many layers to this, right? That's kind of, I think the, there's almost prioritization at the company level, especially when you're a startup, right? Are you, what market are you focusing on? What problem are you focusing on to solve? I think everything stems from those kind of really fundamental decisions, because you can't make a coherent prioritization discussion about a, you know, two stories on a backlog if you don't have a very clear vision and you don't have a clear customer segment in mind either. So it really, for me, starts at a very fundamental level of who is your target customer, what problem are you trying to solve, what is the vision behind the business that's going to try and do that, and from there you can start building a narrative that kind of ties from that, that highest level approach down to every single decision that you make. Right. Uh, on a day-to-day basis as a team. You know, those, two, those questions you were asking, who's your customer, what problem are you trying to solve? I have always been surprised to the degree to which those questions are being answered at the highest levels of the company without much direct observation. And so when I start talking about who is ahead of product and what do they do, that's where I bring in my own sort of personal experience in the, in the industry and over the years around user experience principles and process. As whether we're talking to CEOs or whether we're talking to product people or, or whatever, as like this, this is the thing that I want to emphasize and elevate, which is how much exposure do you actually have to humans and, and witnessing unmet needs in the world and deciding that, uh, based on those observations of these unmet needs, we should therefore do solution X, Y, and Z in this order. Yeah. And so often I find that the founders kind of forget that, right? They probably came up yeah. the, with the idea through direct observation in a previous job or in their personal life or whatever, realize that, hey, there's this huge hole in the market or a huge massive pain point for this customer segment. I want to go solve that problem. And they start there, but then they kind of forget about it and they kind of switch into survival mode, which is understandable, of just trying to sell anything they can sell and, you know, throw, you know, see what they can throw on the wall, it'll stick there. Um, and they kind of forget to go back to those first principles. Yeah, yeah, that happens all the time. Um, and, and I think hard. that's why I'm sure you have the same experience, sorry to interrupt, but in terms of a constant conversation of being like, well, this is why you need a dedicated resource, whether it's 
design or product or user research or all of the above over time that can actually continue to do that every single day as their full-time job and, and bring those insights into the team. Yeah. And, um, and just finding the time. Yeah. Again, like it feels like we have this mountain of work to do and almost nobody to do it. Yeah. Everybody has to do everything. And you want us to do what now? Yeah. Right. And then I think in the early days, there's definitely, you know, there are some fundamental things that just have to get built. Once you've figured out what your fundamental product is, you maybe hopefully have done some, some validation of that with some prototypes or even just some, you know, some paper prototyping or something like that with your target customer. There's probably a period of time, uh, whether it's months or a year or two, where you just have to build that basic set of functionality. Um, especially in today's kind of complex world, it's you can't just kind of come in with a uh, with one idea or one one kind of half house product. You kind of have to have some baseline set of things that you can take to the customer. Um, and then it's mode switching again. So I think that that's the challenge sometimes, like switching from that very early idea to first prototype, and then switching from kind of prototype to like, okay, let's build a functioning basic product here as quickly as possible, ideally, of course. And then again, switch into, okay, do we need to optimize this? How do we make sure this is actually the right product for the right customer? What are they willing to pay for? What additional features do we need to build on top of that? And all three of those have very different modes of work. Really. So, you know, speaking of, like you mentioned just then, uh, you know, going from prototype to product and doing it as quickly as possible. And one of the things that I've always preached is momentum. Right. There's a, there's a speed that we should be going. And that momentum doesn't necessarily imply always fast. Right. I do believe that there's periods for, of reflection and periods of insanity. Right. And that you can't just do insanity all the time or you need yeah. new people every year. Yeah. Like it just yeah. doesn't work. But this idea of learning by shipping and doing it at the smallest, quickest scale like that, that like tight, efficient, iterative process. Um, I have I've, I've been wondering, like, should, did, did we push on that too hard? Right. Like this, it, it infamously now, Mark Zuckerberg always talking about move fast and break things and, and with nobody expecting that, like the thing we would break is democracy. Right. But, but, <laughs> yes. but like, and, and that is like taking that to the nth degree in a way that I think I'm just wondering, is that, is that trickling down a little bit? Like, do, should we slow things down a little? Or, or does that just make us wildly uncompetitive and people, the people who don't slow down are just going to fly by us? I'm, I'm struggling with that a little bit. Yeah, I think it's like most things in, in life, is it's, it's a balancing act, right? And maybe the pendulum swung too far towards uh, execution. And I think the, the language is definitely changing. I think even, uh, you know, I hear a lot of teams and we talk a lot about cadence now, not momentum. Mm. And cadence has a much more like it's a rhythm. It's more about, you know, and that rhythm, to your point, can include ref- reflection and, and learning time as well. It's not just necessarily about shipping, 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 but it is, it's a cadence of getting stuff done. I think there's also, you know, we, the pendulum definitely swung too far in the kind of agile movement, I think, in and just little things around the language as well. Like, I, I absolutely love the Agile Manifesto, but I think the way it's been implemented has often been focusing on the wrong things. So if you look at the language around Scrum about, you know, just Scrum as a concept, it's a very uh, aggressive rugby term, uh, sprints every two weeks, there's no kind of cadence of learning and and uh, resting, it's, it's realizing that all of those sprints mount up to a marathon, right? And we can't sprint our way to a marathon when you have to figure out what the right cadence is to get there. So I definitely think that we did swing too far towards that shipping side. And I talk a lot about kind of the delivery versus discovery parts of product and, and design. And delivery is obviously very important, and we need to be able to deliver once we know what we want to deliver, and we need to do that in a, in a good cadence. 
but it's also so important to have time baked in for the whole team to be a part of the discovery process of understanding what it is that we need to build in the first place. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And so hopefully that's, that pendulum is swinging back now so we find a, a better balancing point between those two and, and to a healthy kind of cadence of work as well. As we mentioned, like delivery and shipping and things like that, there is this uh, this sort of conundrum in the product world in that I feel like they are responsible for a lot of the of the shipping, but at the same time, not given the resources to do so. Right. Like in, at the end of the day, it feels like the CTO and the engineering team are the ones that are going to push the code. And, and ultimately yeah. they are right. They are the ones with all the resources and the ability to do that um, and kind of have their hands on the, on the levers. Um, so like, is, is there this sort of, uh, I don't know, it, it feels like product is always off to the side saying, we could do this better here. Let, let me help you do this. Let me help you do this and stuff like that. But without ultimately the authority to do it. Yeah. I mean, that's always been the kind of inside joke in product, right? Is that it's all the responsibility, none of the authority. Yeah. Um, but I think that also instills a, uh, the right way to do things is that we are not there to tell anyone what to do. We're there to convince them that this is the right thing to do. And it, it kind of instills those communication skills from day one. Uh, I mean, I've been around long enough that I've worked in organizations where we, we wrote kind of giant product definition documents and then threw them over the world to sure. engineering and you know, engineering ships something completely different six months later, but that, that was a communication <laughs> breakdown, right? And I think it's we're in a much better place where it's a it's a shared approach now. And I think the only way to solve that tension and to make sure that those teams are aligned is to make sure that their incentives are aligned so that uh, the real danger is when engineering is incentivized around delivery of story points or some kind of velocity metrics, and the product team is... Uh, incentivized around kind of business metrics and then presumably the design teams on MPS or some other kind of customer satisfaction or quality score. And those three things are not always going to be in perfect harmony. Uh, and so there's going to build tension within the team. Interesting. Interesting. So the success metrics, that's a way of driving uh, alignment. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And I think fundamentally it goes back to that point about uh, having a very strong alignment from your vision and your, your kind of core product idea goals uh, all the way down to your day-to-day decisions because if you know it's, it's kind of trite to say it but if you know what the problem you're trying to solve is you know that you've achieved that when the that problem isn't there right when the customer has kind of solved that problem and so the more that you can align everything in your team around those kind of success metrics of actually solving a customer problem around customer outcomes uh, the more likely they're all going to be able to pull in the same direction and not have that internal tension. Mm, yeah, yeah. But, but like, all right. So getting back to that, like inside joke of authority versus responsibility. Like, why not? Like, in, it, what's what's stopping us uh, on the product side, the design side, the user experience side, from having engineering report up to head of product? Uh, I mean, there are some organizations where that happens, uh, and in, I think it does work where. The kind of head of product or head of design has enough humility to understand that they don't know all the answers and they, they're not just there to tell uh, engineering what to do anyway, even if they do happen to report mm-hmm. to that person. I think uh, my co-author, for example, Nate Walkingshaw, who's the chief experience officer at uh, Pluralsight, which means that he owns product engineering, design, customer satisfaction, and content, I believe. Mm. Basically 70% of the org chart or something. Yeah. Um, he has that responsibility, and, and everybody does report up to him. But uh, those teams are all split into uh, kind of squad 
Yeah. He calls them product experience teams or cross-functional. They own a, a customer segment problem product area, uh, and they decide what to do within that area. So I think ultimately that's what we are big proponents of and what I try to push into all the startups that I work with is building in that autonomy and building in that kind of self-reliance into teams so that, A, you don't need lots of tiers of management to tell them what to do, mm-hmm. uh, and B, you're actually pushing decisions closer to where the customers are, where that customer insight is. Right, right, right. And then I guess you still have those sort of very engineering-like functions of just you know security and performance yes. and yeah. resource management, literally like you know AWS instances and our bills coming in and stuff like that. So you know that kind of performance and and, and things like that, which um, in a squad model, I think uh, are those sort of the things that cut across, right? So yeah. um, going back to our conversation about craft. This would be the craft side of engineering, you know, doing code reviews and making sure that we're using contemporary frameworks and all that kind of stuff. So maybe a bit outside of the the scope of of most you know product people in their careers. Yeah, it's. I mean, I don't love the the naming that Spotify used for their model, but obviously they had the squads, but then they also had the concept of guilds, right? So right. all the even though the designers were each in a squad, they also belonged to the design guild, so that the guild could decide on design standards and best practices and career development and things like that. And the same for product managers and engineers and everyone else in those teams. So I do think at the end of the day, we still end up in some kind of matrix organization. It's just deciding what your primary um, organizational function is, whether it's around that customer unit or whether it's around your function. And I think the what I'm seeing is that the shift is towards the customer unit as opposed to function. And the function is kind of a secondary organizing principle, not a primary organizing principle. Oh, it just goes back and forth. It does, yeah. I think, and frankly, I think it's it's one of those functions of growth. Again, like we're saying, every time you double, you you break, right? So, yeah. um, so we're going to try it decentralized for a while, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to have strong sort of discipline silos, and then we're going to go back to content silos. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I talk a lot about the kind of there's different orgs from one to ten employees, and then from ten to a hundred. They're both ten x problems, but they're very different ten x problems, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So, and then ultimately, like head of product is somebody who holds a vision for the product. Um, and that is where, again, that like, um, the founders letting go, uh, and saying like, ultimately, yes, we have the vision for the company. We have the vision for the product. We started it all and continue to, to, to move that forward. But in the day to day, in the like, how do I take this vision, um, and, and evolve it? Uh, to make sure it's kind of contemporary and, and meets where we are right now and then break it down for people so that they know how their work connects to it. Like that seems to be one of the core functions. Absolutely. And I think it depends on the, the organization, right? And it depends on the founders. I think there are very product minded founders and design minded founders out there who can retain that product vision, uh, even as they divest themselves of other responsibilities of the role and are in charge of the overall company. But there are others who are more suited to kind of running the sales function or marketing function or other parts that can kind of own that and yep. and let go completely of the vision to uh, to a head of product. So I, I do think it is, there is no one size fits all for this. Um, I, I'm working with a couple of startups right now where they're diametric, diametrically opposed. One has a super strong kind of product founder who, if we ever took the product vision away from them, the company would probably fail regardless of what amazing person <laughs> we could replace them with. So we don't want to do that, right? We want to get a really good executor in there, somebody who can help build the function, help build the team, 
uh, make sure that they're you know, hitting the right cadence, all those other things that we talked about, without necessarily taking away the vision piece. Whereas in another organization, it's a very kind of commercial sales-oriented founder, and they're way better used going out there, hitting the road, um, working with the external functions, and finding a strong product leader who can take over the product vision and, and you know, entrust them with that. So right. it does vary. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. Um, we've talked a lot about startups. Uh, you also have the categories of, uh, I think you call it emerging uh, company. Yeah, and, we could, we could and figure out the of course, best so. nomenclature for that, but yeah. No, I think that's pretty good. But so, so how do how do things change? Kind of uh, to sum up, as a company reaches that plateau, and what do you consider that? Like a couple hundred people, or yeah, I think emerging is definitely the fuzziest area. It is that kind of um, somewhere from thirty-ish to a couple hundred, probably that we thought about it. Yeah, and then enterprise, anything above that. For me, enterprise is definitely where you have more than one key product, right? So you probably have a, have to start thinking about a portfolio approach to products. Uh, you might have you know, multiple heads of product that all own one of those segments, and then you have a, a VP or a CPO who kind of takes a portfolio approach and tries to figure out um, how to prioritize among that whole portfolio of opportunities that they have in front of them. The, the middle ground is definitely, I think, the defined by you know, t- letting go from the founder and, and starting to build up from that one team around in the room where everyone knows what's happening just because they're in the same room to... Uh, you know, multiple teams, possibly multiple locations, um, how you start thinking about communication in a whole different way where it's not just intrinsically understood because everyone's around the same table and having lunch together every day, but has to be thought about, communicated, repeated uh, in order to, to hit that same kind of penetration and, and understanding among the team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then at the, at the enterprise level, it just kind of... Um, it just scales and scales. I mean, I see some of the some of the visualizations you have in the in the latter half of the book around you know thirty five product teams doing ninety different launches per month and 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 how you get your arms around that and try to do the level of consistency and and all of that. Yeah. And then I think at that level, you know, both the emerging level and the, the enterprise level the, is where product leadership really becomes about leading other product managers, and it's not thinking about. Um, building the product as not being the best possible individual contributor. It's being a communication layer that makes sure that all those teams know what all the other teams are working on, um, where they've discovered, where they have overlaps, where they have discovered best practices that the other teams should know about, um, that they're all aligned towards the same goals, where the, you know, what, what teams are weakest and might need coaching. Like it, it really becomes a people problem at that point. Yep. Yep. For sure. So what's the career path like? Um, I, I tend to, you know, like I always say, um, feel like having solid user experience in your background is a great qualifier for a head of product. But there's also the, the pure, uh, you know, product management career path as well. How do you feel about that these days? I think, I mean, there is the challenge with product is there's still no one school for product. There's no one degree, no one background for it. So you kind of have to move laterally into product from some other role generally. Um, and I guess I'm somewhat well known for a Venn diagram that I drew in 2011 that kind of defined product management as the intersection of UX, um, business and technology. Right. And there's yeah. a hint in there somewhere that a product manager is probably the only person who would define themselves as a Venn diagram. But anyway, um, <laughs> I think the key is uh, a great product person has to come from one of those backgrounds. Uh, and you're right, UX is absolutely one of the best backgrounds. But it, again, it depends on the product, depends on the, the tech stack behind it. 
Um, there's a lot of technical product managers out there who, whose customers are other engineers, right? So they're API products, they're kind of data layer products, AWS, all these other products that have as a consumer an engineer that makes total sense for someone to have an engineering background and be able to understand that pain point in a whole other way. Um, some products are much more about optimizing go-to-market strategies, pricing and, and business models and uh, unit economics, and then it can be valuable to have that kind of MBA background as well. But in consumer apps, generally at least, uh, a UX background is, is one of the strongest backgrounds for that um, for that product leader. And I think there there are some programs coming out now around uh, called associate product managers. Uh, Google and Facebook have these where you can come out as a graduate, go straight into the program. It's kind of a classic rotational program where you move through a few different teams and roles in the company to kind of learn the overall picture uh, and then end up being a product manager for a team. And I think that's a fantastic way to do it because mm-hmm. I think as much as we love doing training and we love doing workshops and things like that, it's really one of those jobs that you learn best by doing. And so getting experience any way you can is, is the best way to become a great product leader. And then I think career pathways, I think we have a similar challenge to what design and engineering have, but have kind of figured out. And it's that path, the choice of path as you as you go up the ranks between becoming a great individual contributor and being a leader of other people. And at least until recently, in product management, there's only really been the path of leading other people. So um, it, in order to progress in your career, you've had to move away from being a product manager of actually building a product and working with the team day to day to leading other product managers. And I think now we're starting to see that soften a little bit, which I think is a good thing. Um, and analogous to having kind of the architect track in uh, engineering and the, the creative director track in design of having kind of principal product managers or lead product managers that are allowed to stay individual contributors and be part of a team but be responsible for a really important product uh, and still be kind of hands-on building that product. I've, yeah, I've worked with people who have 15 years as a practitioner yeah. in product management, I was absolutely astounded at how good they were at what they did yeah. uh, and how different it was from, you know, managing a team. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, just insanely effective at driving consensus uh, and clarifying requirements and just like all, just like locking down schedules. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing yeah. in, yeah. you know, organizations of 20,000 people. Yeah. Know, so, uh, so that's great stuff. Um, this was super helpful. Uh, really helped clarify a lot of the thinking that I'm going through. I really appreciate it, Martin. Um, let's get people to some more of this. Where can we, where can we send them? Let's see. Uh, they should go to mindtheproduct.com and learn all about, uh, the opportunities for learning through the community there. Absolutely. And all our videos from every conference we've ever had are up there as well, including your excellent talk. Oh, thank you. You're too kind. Um, uh, but there's, and there's a bunch of great stuff there. And in fact, I'm just, I'm looking, uh, I'm on the website right now looking at what exactly is a product manager written <laughs> by you back in 2011, where you've yep. got your Venn diagram. So that yep. goes way back. That Part of the back. canon now. <laughs> That's great. Um, anyway, there's a bunch of stuff that you can read there, watch there, and all that kind of stuff. You are, uh, BFG Martin. At, yep. uh, on Twitter. So we on Twitter that and out. almost everywhere else. And almost everywhere else. So I'll put a bunch of links in the show notes. Go have a look at the that big stuff. friendly giant of product. <laughs> I like that. That's great. Um, Martin, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. It's been awesome. 
And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable. Presentable.